0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Wednesdays at SSP, a podcast produced by MIT's security studies program here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My name is Chris Burns and I produce this series. This podcast features recordings of our program's Wednesday seminar series where prominent voices in security studies are invited to give a lecture on their current research. Today's featured guest is Dr. Renard Sexton, a professor of political science at Emory University. Dr. Sexton studies conflict and development with a focus on local-level violence and interventions intended to curb violence. He has regional expertise in Afghanistan, Southeast Asia, and Andean Latin America. In today's presentation, Dr. Sexton focuses on rebel-provided social services, particularly an ad hoc court system implemented by the Taliban government in Afghanistan. In areas where this system was implemented, Sexton's team finds major increases in approval for Taliban rule, and in those same areas, the team also found that the Taliban was able to increase bombings and other attacks against
1: government and foreign troops. Thanks a lot, it's great to be here with you guys. Um, I'm excited to present uh, this project, which is a working paper. This is maybe the second uh, time I've presented it, so I think it's a really good time to get some feedback and and input from the the crowd here. Um, Thanks also to the people online, but thanks especially to the folks that came today in person. So this work is uh, jointly with one of my PhD students, uh, Don Grassi, and Austin Wright, who's a prof at uh, the Harris School, um, University of Chicago. All right, let's go. Uh, So back in August of last year, August 2021, um, the Taliban took over Kabul. This is an image of the presidential palace in Kabul when they had um, occupied what used to be former president Ashraf Ghani's desk. And this was a bit of a shock at the time. I mean, now that they've been in power for a while, I think we all sort of have, have accommodated the new the new situation. But at the time, people were you know, including the Biden administration, were quite shocked that they were able to take power. Um, And in fact, they swept through the country pretty rapidly over the course of early 2021, um, as US troops were withdrawing, Um, they took over, um, you know, most districts well in advance of August, um, and then um, took Kabul in, in August. And the reason that this was a bit surprising to people was that the Taliban had been in power, of course, in the 1990s, uh, they had a quite brutal regime that was not popular with almost anybody. Um, they engaged in a sort of long insurgency versus uh, in opposition to some of the groups in the north, especially the Tajiks and, and Uzbek militant groups there. And quite a bit of money was invested by the international community to strengthen the, the, the former Afghan government. Um, nonetheless, they were able to take over the country quite quickly. And so, you know, one of the big questions is Why was that possible? And the paper that we're looking at today, or the study that I'll be presenting to you, basically argues that service provision, particularly in the judicial sector, was really important for explaining why the Taliban were able to sweep into power. Now, of course, we're gonna be looking at a sort of narrow set of outcomes and specifically about how it moved public opinion, how it impacted um, different kinds of, of disputes, and also the impact on violence. But more broadly, you know, we wanna make the case that this kind of activity was really important for why ultimately the Taliban were able to take over uh, in 2021. And in practice, what this means is the Taliban, during the you know, sort of decade of intense insurgency, operated a shadow government in many parts of the country, and they produced public goods that were meaningful to the local population. And in particular, they did a fair amount of conflict resolution, and in some cases, just judicial decision-making, in which they uh, decided who won particular disputes and enforced those decisions. in the context of Afghanistan, where the existing incumbent government was quite corrupt and slow moving, this was no small feat. In fact, the population, even those that did not necessarily agree with the decisions that the Taliban were making, really valued the fact that those decisions were, were being made. And so what we do is, um, using a, a number of different data sources that we'll talk about, we're able to, I think, demonstrate reasonably well that Taliban courts uh, reduced the number of property disputes by about 12 percentage points. Um, although there was no change to crime, so it's clear that they were focusing on property disputes. And then this resulted in quite significant effects on public opinion. So what we find is in a, a battery of questions that are kind of um, oriented towards government approval, we find a um, one-third standard deviation reduction um, in the places the courts were operating. We also see less willingness to use government courts versus um, alternative methods like the Taliban courts. And lastly, we see a big increase in approval of the Taliban on these public opinion surveys after the courts are operating. And then finally, we find that there's a big increase in the ability of the Taliban to carry out uh, attacks against both foreign troops and um, Afghan government, um, uh, the Afghan National Army. So we see 20 percent higher insurgent violence, both in direct fire uh, incidents and also IEDs, bombings. So this is kind of the outline of what I'll be talking about for the next 20 minutes or so. Um, We'll start with a bit of background, Um, we'll talk through kind of the core theory, uh, and then we'll get into research design and results. So um, the question of rebel public uh, goods provision in conflict areas is not a new question. So many different groups, including the FARC in Colombia, Hezbollah, or the Syrian Kurdish um, rebels, many of these different groups provide um, public goods for people in the areas that they operate. And people within kind of the um, different parts of social science and also journalists have documented a lot of this. And there are two main ideas behind why rebels do produce these public goods. So for, uh, for one, there's kind of your standard stationary bandit story where it enhances local productivity. So you provide public public goods, this makes the economy stronger, and then um, you're able to extract more overall. And then there's this sort of alternative story that in fact, by providing public goods, you also can win the hearts and minds of the population. So it makes people like you more, it makes it you know, more likely that you'll be able to win in the long run. Now, the previous literature has really focused on under what conditions do rebels actually provide these public goods? So why is it and when is it that they, um, you know, do this kind of public service provision? And, um, you know, what's been missing so far from the literature, though, is what exactly is it that public goods could do, in particular, rebel-provided public goods, that would change the public's um, behavior? Because, in fact, much of the existing work on public goods provision by, say, the government, Uh, is quite mixed. And in many cases, providing public goods does not shift people's attitudes towards the government or reduce violence. And so the question is, why would we think that rebel governance would be any different from the kind of mixed evidence that we've seen on government uh, provided things? And, you know, in practice, what would the ultimate causal effect be? Do these public goods provided by, say, the Taliban actually move the needle? And so the, the sort of underlying theory that we put forward in our paper is that, um, in fact, property rights are a big problem in conflict zones, which is something that, you know, people in this room know well. There are lots of disputes over property, and when things are uncertain in these, uh, in these times, people are often willing to, you know, take quite risky actions to gain, you know, take new land or um, push out people from, from neighboring lands. And what we find is that there is quite a bit of, of property disputes uh, during uh, times of conflict. And to kind of resolve these issues, uh, people can turn to various different um, providers. So you can go to existing government courts, you can go to local um, dispute resolution providers, or in the case that there are active rebels, you can go um, try and have rebels uh, resolve your issues. Now. In places like Afghanistan, where the government courts are not particularly well regarded, and maybe the local shuras or local councils are unable to enforce uh, the decisions they make, rebels might look like a really good option. Because they're cheap, because they will operate very quickly, Um, maybe they are very in tune with the local cultural context, and most importantly, and what we're going to talk about kind of as our core theoretical hook here. if the rebels do a good job of, of providing these services and they're going to stick around, that is they're not going to be pushed back out by the government, then the um, rebel justice will stick in place rather than just being a temporary measure. And so if rebels are able to successfully reduce these um, local disputes, it actually gives the the population a vested interest in them remaining in power. So. Um, if, for example, rebels resolve some set of disputes, and then the government comes in, kicks them out, then all of those disputes and all those judgments that they made will be reopened again. They won't, like, the, the same disputants, and probably the loser of the previous decision, would then want to go back to the you know new incumbent power and say, hey, you know, uh, we, this dispute is reopened, and, and we want to have a different um, result. So, um, once those things have been resolved, there's a real interest on the part of not just the parties, but you know, the broader population who don't want to see these things reopened to um, have the rebels remain in power. I mean, it also obviously demonstrates some capacity. If you're able to go through the process, uh, find a, a, some sort of a solution and enforce it, that obviously shows you have some governance capacity. And so the set of hypotheses that come out of this is that if the, gov- if the rebels are successful at doing dispute resolution, they obviously this is sort of a manipulation check. There should be fewer disputes, obviously, but if those um, courts are if that first condition holds, then we might expect a whole slew of additional implications. So, for example, um, you know people might feel uh, you know less positively towards the government, particularly government courts. Um, they'll think more positively about rebels. They may be willing to collaborate with those rebels on the battlefield, and this you know in turn can uh, produce worse. Uh, battlefield outcomes for government and maybe their foreign allies. so we're testing this in the context of Afghanistan. Um, the logic, of course, might hold for uh, any you know context in which uh, this kind of vested interest might uh, result. So it doesn't just have to be justice. It could be any kind of public good that the government produces that uh, would you know lose its value should the uh, incumbent power change. But in this case, we're going to look at the Taliban in Afghanistan. Um, after the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks in the US, um, the the US and its NATO allies invaded Afghanistan and they overthrew the, the Taliban government in um, that's not August 2021. That's um, that would be before 9-11. Uh, it would be November 2021 or 2001. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so initially, obviously, the Taliban did quite poorly. They were kicked out of power, and for about three years, they sort of um, were in the in the background until a new constitution was uh, put together in two thousand four, which created the sort of centralized structure of the Afghan government that then you know we observed for the fifteen years that was in existence. And beginning in two thousand six, the Taliban started reconstituting itself with support tacitly and. Uh, with some funds from Pakistan, and indeed a uh, significant number of members uh, hiding out in Pakistan, they uh, came back in strength. Now in 2009, 2010, after President Obama took power in the US, he conducted a, you know, what was known as the surge in Afghanistan, um, where the troop levels peaked at over 100,000, um, which from a battlefield perspective, the Taliban um, did quite poorly, um, and they had quite a bit less financial strength than they had before. And after that surge though the Obama administration decided to start drawing down their forces and this is the period that we're really going to be focusing on which is where the Taliban is sort of deciding how are we going to kind of respond to this set of setbacks that we've had on the battlefield but also recognizing that the foreign um, occupiers are kind of ready to, to call it quits. And so what we find is or what we observed is beginning in 2011 By the way, this data came from Antonio Giustozzi, who's a a scholar um, of Afghanistan at King's College in London. Um, We were able to find out about courts operating uh, throughout the country um, from 2011, 12, 13. um, So I guess from 2011 to the end of 2013. Um, And over the course of this three-year period, um, 336 districts had uh, courts at least some time. This is a map, this shows you kind of the, the set. So what's interesting is uh, the areas in red are those that had um, courts, and the kind of deepness of the red shows when they started. So the darkest red in 2011 shows the courts that started first. Uh, The middle red are the ones that started in 2012, and then finally 2013 are the lightest color. The white ones are the places where there was never a court ever in operation. And then we have a few districts that are in gray here that are kind of an interesting um, side note, which is these are places where courts were established but later withdrawn. And mostly those were um, because of either financial limitations on the part of the Taliban or kind of turf disputes between the local commanders. So we'll talk a little bit about how we treat those, uh, treat those separately. We treat them in a, a number of different ways and they don't really matter for the analysis, the main analysis, but they also give us a nice kind of side test of what happens when you start at court, but then don't let it operate for very long. So the basic design here is a typical diff and diff in the sense that we've got data from the places where the courts are operating, places where they weren't operating, and before and after data. Um, now there are a couple issues with um, this particular application though because we do find some evidence of selecting on trends, which means you know obviously with a diff and diff, you have to have this parallel trends assumption, and when there's evidence of selecting on trends, um, you need to account for that. There's also this question of the places where courts were uh, withdrawn eventually. So to deal with the first issue, we use trajectory balancing. Essentially, we use uh, ba- um, matching on our on our um, outcome um, from the pre uh, pre period, so before two thousand and eleven or before the court, court operated, um, and it's essentially reweighting. Right, you're re- reweighting your your units such that the pre trends look the same and you're treat- treated in your treated treated and controlled areas. Then we also, in terms of looking at the withdrawn courts, um, we either exclude them entirely from the analysis, we include them as treated, include them as control, Um, but then kind of I think the most interesting thing is that we treat them separately as a third category that we compare against the control case. Um, The data that we use come from a few sources that um, I was able to collect over the years. Um, We have data from two different sources in terms of outcomes, in terms of violence. Uh, So Uh, The Afghanistan NGO Safety Organization was a group that basically kept um, kind of databases of incidents that um, in order to allow NGOs to operate safely so they would know where things were happening. Um, But then we also have the data from the U.S. military itself. So the nice thing here is that we're not relying just on the U.S. government reports or on this NGO. So we're able to kind of verify from two different sources. Um, when it comes to the public opinion, though, we only have one source, which is a quarterly survey that was uh, paid for by the U.S. government, but uh, administered by an Afghan survey organization. And the main three outcomes we look at here are a kind of index of pro-government sentiment, um, an index of attitudes about security, and then whether they would choose to use a government court or some other venue if they, in the event of having a dispute. Okay, so let's look at some results here. So basically, once you've done your, so I'm gonna show you just the trajectory balance results, the, the two-way fixed effects look pretty similar. Um, I mean, they sorry, the diff and diff looks pretty similar. Um, so you can see in the pre-period, after we've applied the, um, uh, the trajectory balancing, everything looks identical, right? Um, after the courts are operating, though, we see this sh- uh, pretty strong divergence, where um, in a counterfactual case where there are no courts, the number of, or the probability of uh, a dispute, uh, a property dispute taking place, uh, continues to rise in the places where the courts uh, levels off. And so that, that difference there is essentially representing the, the treatment effect of the, of the courts in this place. So this is the extension of margin. This is whether there's a dispute or not in the, in the district. Um, um, also, when we zoom in specifically on property disputes, which we think are kind of the, the core issue here, if, if our story about vested interest is correct, um, again, we see a you know, quite uh, significant difference between the places that had courts and our counterfactual cases. And just to kind of give you a sense of the magnitude so, this is just your, your tra- trajectory balanced uh, diff and diff table. Um, in terms of the number of disputes, we see about a 13 percentage point reduction, um, depending on whether you're doing the intensive margin or the extensive margin. And that is driven almost entirely by, um, or not, sorry, a significant proportion of it are property disputes. But interestingly, we find no difference in crime. So it's clear that these courts are primarily looking at these civil disputes rather than at things like, and the crime category is things like um, theft, kidnapping, robbery, um, homicide that's not related to insurgency. And so we see that these courts are not, you know, moving the needle on those kinds of those kinds of outcomes. So the takeaway message from this table is the Taliban courts appear to have been you know, functioning successfully at reducing the number of disputes, and in particular at like land and property disputes. Now, the consequences though for public opinion um, are quite interesting. So we find that on our index of support for the government, um, which has a, um, a mean of around zero, and a standard deviation of 1.8, we see a reduction of 0.65, which is about a one third of a standard deviation reduction. So in places where the courts were operating, afterwards people became less supportive of the government. And they also um, reduced the probability that they said they would use a government court. So ex ante, it would be about 0.46. So about 46% of people said they'd go to a government court um, and that gets reduced to um, 40%. And when it comes to Taliban approval, in the control um, areas, about 18 percent were supportive of the Taliban, and that increases by five percentage points up to 23 after the courts are operating. So it's clear that, you know, there are significant movements here. I mean, it's not you know, like a doubling. It's not going from 18 to 36, but it is a you know, small but significant change in, in public opinion in the immediate aftermath of the courts.
0: You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays with SSP featuring Dr. Renard Sexton.
1: How does this translate into uh, combat, into the actual conflict outcomes? So um, the set of outcomes we have here, we have separately um, the the count of incidents and then these different types. So this is armed opposition groups from uh, armed opposition group events from the NGO group. This is IEDs from the NGO group. Uh, direct fire and IEDs, those are coming from the U.S. government data. So um, you can see that the two different um, types of outcomes or the two different sources of the data look quite similar. You're seeing more casualties. You're seeing more incidents. Um, so basically, these, these courts are clearly associated with um, an increase in, in violence. And you can see this also uh, in sort of chart form. This is IEDs on the left, coming from the U.S. government, and then the number of casualties. So the, it's not just more incidents, but they're also generating um, more casualties. Okay, so there's a, there's a couple of different things to think about when it comes to what might be driving the effects that we're observing here. Um, one is, if the Taliban are indeed um, you know, creating these judgments— Um, are they actually going and enforcing the the judgments that they have? So in order for it to be different from, say, a local Shura, we'd expect to see more uh, Taliban enforcement activities. Um, We also wonder to what extent, you know, is the uh, violence result being driven by actual, um, you know, informing on the part of the citizens? So we try to look at that a little bit. And then we look at a number of heterogeneous effects to try and see, you know, who among the Afghan population may be driving these effects. Um, And then there's one more here, which I apparently neglected from the slides, which is the where we're looking at specifically the withdrawing courts versus the non-withdrawing courts. Because the idea is um, it could be that, say, the Taliban are coordinating, you know, starting to do more violence at the same time that they're introducing the courts. So is the violence really a consequence of the courts or is it just a... um, you know, a, a bundle treatment, if you will. And so what we do is we look at the um, withdrawn courts as kind of a comparison where if the, if the courts that were withdrawn, they started and they stopped, uh, if it was a coordinated effect, we would still expect to see the violence effect there. Um, if it's a consequence, though, we would expect to not see the violence effect there. And so what we find with the withdrawn courts is that we do see a small um, public opinion effect, but we see no effect on, on violence. So at least in principle, that suggests that it wasn't just a coordinated effort. I mean, unless you think that the withdrawn courts are so categorically different, but at least ex ante, it looks like, or or prima facie, it seems like it wasn't just strictly a a bundled violence plus plus courts. Okay, so um, we had this interesting outcome from the uh, U.S. military, which is keeping track of intimidation incidents. So this is basically where the Taliban go and they, you know, they don't actually you know, hurt anyone, but they sort of tell them to do something or not do something um, with their guns uh, in tow. And we do see this effect where, yes, um, it appears that when the courts are, are, are operating, they're doing quite a bit more intimidation as well, which we interpret as being related to enforcement of the, of the judgments in many cases. When it comes to IED reporting, we don't really have a well-identified effect here. Um, We decided to just kind of look at the survey data and try and understand if there's a relationship between uh, willingness to use government courts and the likelihood of of reporting IEDs to to the government. Um, And what we do find is that uh, even with a bunch of individual covariates and district and wave fixed effects, there is an additional marginal effect of willingness to use government courts versus other kinds of courts on um, the likelihood of, of reporting. So this is like some weak but sort of suggestive evidence that, uh, in fact, this this question of, of kind of government capacity uh, is related to this ultimate sort of security outcome that we look at. Um, then we all look at a bunch of heterogeneous effects, which we found quite interesting, I think. You know, the Taliban are known as this primarily Pashtun organization that are as much involved in promoting Pashtun Wali or kind of like Pashtun traditional codes as they are, you know, Islamic law. But we actually found that there's no difference across ethnic groups. So Hazaras, Tajiks, Uzbeks all saw an increase in their uh, across the survey outcomes, so they're more willing to support the Taliban. Now, granted, they were in most cases starting from a lower baseline, but we saw similar effects among these different groups. Similarly, in terms of socioeconomic status, we thought it was interesting that both poor and rich respondents, uh, you know, basically had quite similar results. Um, you might think think ex ante that it's primarily rich people who are involved in these these land disputes, and therefore maybe they would have more um, you know, more to gain from, from them no longer being around. But I think in practice, there's a lot of spillovers, right? You know, there was some, you know, there's one incident that we were, that we read about, which was, um, you know, over an orchard that was disputed between two arms of the family. Um, and it ended up kind of consuming the whole village where even people that were not even part of the family kind of had to pick a side, you know, one way or the other. Um, and so it's clear that when those uh, disputes are resolved, you know, the, the broader community also benefits from not having that kind of, that kind of violence. Um, we do a bunch of, of robustness, um, not just the, the trajectory balancing. Um, we do have a longer panel for certain outcomes. I won't talk about that now. Um might be concerned about um, the standard errors because the Hazlitt approach uses jackknife, but we, we also use um, bootstrapping as well. So, yeah, this is what I was talking about earlier. The, when the courts are withdrawn, we, we see this small public opinion effect in line with the others, but there's no effect on violence. So at least we know that when the courts are immediately, immediately started, they don't um, initially come necessarily with an increase in, in attacks. And then, you know, we can remove those. We can put them back in. And, and in part because it's a relatively small share of the sample, it doesn't really move the results very much. Okay, so just to wrap up um, the talk here, essentially we find you know, reasonably good evidence that these courts were successful at reducing disputes, um, that they changed attitudes towards the Taliban away from government, um, and that it actually changed the way that the battlefield uh, outcomes took place. So you know the Taliban were able to do more IEDs, they were able to kill more foreign soldiers, um, and so this, this appears to really matter. And I think that kind of the broader takeaway message is that Despite the mixed evidence that we have about government investments in this kind of like services for peace type paradigm, it seems that rebels that are able to create a service that makes a vested interest in their uh, maintaining a power uh, that definitely matters quite a bit. If we contrast that with other kinds of investments, you know, if you build a road, if you build a health clinic, it kind of doesn't matter who's in pow- power, like especially with a road, you know, somebody else gets pushed out, then, you know, you can continue to use the road even with a new government in place. Similarly with health clinics or schools, maybe they'll come in and they'll, um, you know, put new teachers there, but in principle, there's no reason that service can't be reused. Whereas something like a, a justice intervention, court um, um, interventions, it's not necessarily the case that people would believe that a new authority would maintain all the former decisions. And in fact, they may aggressively try to, to, to change those. So it, it also matters what kinds of public goods you're providing to the, to the local population. So with that, I'll stop and I'm looking forward to, to feedback and questions. So thanks. Great, thanks. <laughs>
0: You are listening to an episode of Wednesdays with SSP featuring Dr. Bernard Sexton. He will now take questions from the audience. Uh, sure, thank you so much. This
2: is a really interesting talk. Um, so, I wonder about if you could elaborate some on just like the context of what happens when these courts are set up and what else is going on at the same time. Um, and particularly, wondering about like if there are other services that tend to be provided alongside courts that could also be shaping public opinion. Um, and then also wondering about just like what's actually going on inside these courts um, and why we might be seeing this difference between like crime and property rights. Yeah. Um, and is it that, like, they just aren't doing criminal cases, or is it that, like, those are not popular and people don't like that type of Taliban justice? Thanks.
1: Thanks, yeah. So, okay, let's let's try to set the scenery a little bit. So, 2011 to 2013, um, you know, the Taliban are kind of resurging, if you will. Um, I will say that there's, like, a bit of distinction between this period and maybe, like, 2019, 2020, when the... Um, The Taliban and the U.S. were negotiating, and the the Taliban had a much more sort of well-developed apparatus. But during this period, they were mobile courts. So it was basically two guys riding around on motorbikes, going from place to place, and resolving disputes as they came. So if you had a dispute, you would essentially approach them, call them on your phone and say, Hey, I have this problem with my neighbor. I have this problem with my my relative. Um, Can you come help us out? And they would literally just like drive up to the place. So they would show up on on their motorbike. They would, um, in some cases where maybe there was uh, more of like a district center, maybe they would send a letter that says, I'm convening every, all the parties to this at this, at the following time, Uh, come to the following place and show up there. And sometimes they would sit outside. Sometimes they would have a little building, depending on, you know, how, you know, basically how much control the Taliban had of that particular place. And, Each side would present their evidence. Sometimes people would bring paperwork there. Sometimes the the hearing would happen without paperwork and the paperwork would be provided later. Um, So this kind of interaction would happen. And then ultimately the judge would decide, okay, I'm ruling in favor of this person. Um, This is what the, the decision is. They would write something down and then that would be communicated to the commanders. So these were not commanders. These were like specifically judges that have been trained mostly in Pakistan um, on Islamic law that would be uh, administering this. So in terms of like what maybe would, would have been going on alongside these courts, I mean in most cases not very much because Taliban just didn't have that much capacity at the time and in fact the reason that they invested in this particular type of ser- service provision is that it was relatively inexpensive. You basically, you train your judges, um, you need to pay for you know fuel. Most of the time the, the motorbikes were already available from the sort of fighting organizations. Um, and so like two or three judges would be, would be sent to a district and then they would go around and and do this kind of thing. I think later on, once we get to maybe year 2019, 2020, 2021, um, you know, there's more of say like small madrasas being set up or maybe, um, occasional sort of like rice or food distributions that are going on. So I don't think we would, we wouldn't claim that there's none of that happening, but, they just, they were really financially strapped at this time, right? I mean, Pakistan had pulled a lot of support. The Gulf countries were really not sending money. And so they, they just didn't have a lot of resources. And this was maybe what they thought was the most efficient way of doing that.
3: Um. Yeah, um, so just building on Nina's point, right, so I think the story you tell is that the Taliban was kind of financially strapped at this point, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what enforcement looked like, yeah. right, because it seems like in order to enforce, you need some kind of monitoring mechanism, and so if they are this kind of cash-strapped and resource-poor, resource, resource poor, what did the, the monitoring
1: enforcement mean? So the monitoring and enforcement was mostly by, like, the fighters, if you will. So you have, like, maybe two or three judges that are making decisions but it's like the fighting units that ultimately have to enforce what's going on. So what we observe in the data at least is that many of these intimidation uh, instances are when you know commanders basically, so there's kind of two different kinds of intimidation. One is they're uh, going after collaborators or people that they think are um, like sharing information with the government. And they're. so this is one type. And then the second type is like enforcing decisions. So let's say somebody loses, they don't want to comply, they don't want to give up their orchard, whatever. Um, then the whoever it was that won the judgment would contact the Taliban and say, hey, you know, I won this decision. This guy is not doing what he's supposed to do. And then either the commander or the judge. So if the commander got the call, he would just go do it on his own. Or the judge would, would call the commander and say like, hey, you know, show up to the loser's house and tell him we're serious. If you keep screwing around, we're going to, you know, do something bad to you. So it was very much like it required the participation and support of the the military wing as well. Which, you know, when we say the military wing, we're talking like 95% of the resources. So it is it is basically the Taliban, and then there's like this small sort of court uh, on the side. But they had, you know, I think the, the commanders really saw the value of this, right? And so they would take time out to go enforce these decisions periodically when they felt like it was not pulling away from their other sort of military activities.
4: So just to clarify, these courts were established in places the Taliban already controlled?
1: No. Or were
4: there they were places over which the Taliban was contesting uh, control?
1: Every, every different type, so okay. ranging from, so like, um, you know, obviously in places where they had control, they, um, you know, it was, you know, easier maybe to, to um, establish those. But, I mean, we, we have all different variations. So there are places where Taliban had control that they didn't have courts. There were places that, they, that were contested that they did and didn't. And so it was much more related to kind of like, where did they have the personnel to operate, operate these courts? Um, and like a Taliban commander would be, op, even if they didn't have control, like there would be Taliban commanders responsible for every district of Afghanistan. Now they may have to primarily be operating in a neighboring area. Maybe they don't actually you know, go there very often, but they had at least military personnel that were operating in all places. They just didn't have these sort of court personnel in all places, if that makes sense.
4: Yeah, yeah. So, so then the effect on public opinion, does that vary by whether or not it's an area that they control, that they contest, or that they don't control? So, But I guess the violence as well, I mean.
1: Yeah, I mean, so we don't have great measures of Taliban control in 2011, 2012. Um, we have measures of like where... Uh, the U.S. and foreign forces had, you know, strong bases and things like that. So, um, you know, in previous work, including some of my work, we've used that measure. Um, So, as it turns out, that measure does not correlate with any of the outcomes. That is, it doesn't matter whether there was a strong U.S. presence there or not for whether the courts were effective at moving public opinion. Um, But again, we don't, all we know is like the residual of places where the U.S. had not, Have consolidated control. We don't really know, like within that, how strong the Taliban control is, if that makes sense.
4: Yeah. And then to our last quick question, I'll go back to the queue. Um, So, in the areas that, or or, or, in the areas I guess that are contested, um, are there multiple courts available simultaneously? Like, so are people choosing, like, this multiple court versus the other options, or is it? This is just like this is it, and yeah. so you're going to use it when 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 you when the need arises.
1: I mean, in theory, in theory, there are all three options available. Uh, that is, government court, local shura, and Taliban court are like theoretically op- op- um, available in most places. Um, so the 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 government courts are officially available in all places, but they're clearly more or less available depending on like how far it takes maybe how corrupt the local judges are, these kinds of things, right? The Taliban courts really only are operating in the places that we've, op- that we've, that we've talked about. I mean, you could call them and say, I have this dispute in this other place. Um, and they could, you know, go there and do that. We just don't, we see, we don't see evidence of them operating in the places where they have not And the local shuras again, they should be everywhere, right? Like they're, they've been doing this kind of dispute resolution for quite some time. So I think to summarize, the government courts in theory were there, the shura courts in practice were there, and the Taliban courts were available in this subset of places. So in most places, they're competing with the local shura and like the idea of a government court.
4: Uh, yep. Yeah,
2: so my number two is my, my one figure uh, also, but okay. I'm, I'm curious if you can... Abstract this out a little bit, and so what your theoretical intuition, independent of this empirical case, is mm-hmm. for the first part of Nina's question of how they're deciding to establish courts here not there and the draw courts here not there. And so I think the candidate options on the table it sounds like personnel availability, which is correlated with territorial control and uh, financial constraints. But I think this gets back to your bundled treatment um, point. And it, it seems um, almost uh, puzzling that we, it wouldn't be a bundled treatment because you might expect based on your initial theoretical claim that the two conditions under which it really helps insurgents uh, is that you think that they're going to stick around for a while and that they're not going to be easily pushed back and and the goods will be effective. And so if I were a notional insurgent, independent of the Taliban, just in general, I would say that I want to do things that will convince the local population of the stick around. So we'll use my courts and not others. Uh, And so it seems like they should have bundled treatments, not just with other services, but also the application of violence, which is probably also correlated with personnel available in territory.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... Yeah, thanks. That's that's really great. Um, so when it comes to personnel control, or sorry, personnel availability and the financial resources, I think there's a slight difference between them in the sense that, like, the financing is relatively fungible. Um, you can choose to kind of spend it on whatever, but the personnel availability is much more specialized. So the the, the, the judges had to have been trained in a set of particular madrasas in Pakistan, um, and they can't like quickly assume those roles and. You can sort of become a fighter relatively quickly, um, and so like they can kind of restock their their fighter uh, uh, their fighting capacity quick, more quickly. They can't really restock their their, their judge uh, stock very quickly, um, and so I think the way that I would think about it is that you you have this like limited financial constri- uh, financial pool which you mostly put into military things, um, and then you have this like. Residual that you choose to spend on on uh, courts, depending on where you have personnel, which have to be drawn from Pakistan. So, like if you if we look at the map, there's like more on the closer to the border where they could sort of get over there. Um, but it was also like somewhat idiosyncratic because you had basically people that had kind of some. Um, historical ties with particular parts of Afghanistan. And that's mostly where they did a little bit of assignment of within the judges who was assigned where. Um, the problem is we don't have a roster of the of the of the judges themselves. So if we had a roster, we'd be able to know much more clearly how they were assigning it. But like at a, at a macro level, what we learned is that the um, leadership in both the Quetta and Peshawar uh, Shuras essentially took judges and sent them to places that they thought were like you know, relatively close to the um, kind of geography where they had some maybe um, historical connection or like they wouldn't take Easterners, for example, instead send them to the south. Um, so clearly there's some relationship also there with maybe the relative strength of the, you know, Taliban personnel that were trained in the madrasas, although they, they took some care to try and have geographic diversity in the madrasas as well, um, in order to deal with exactly this problem. But so there's there's some function there of who gets sent where and the density of people from different parts of Afghanistan that were trained in the Madrasas. Um, so anyways, I, that whole assignment process we're not entirely sure about because we just don't have the data of it. But to your bigger question of like, okay, this doesn't make sense if if you have this sort of personnel and you have this uh, availability, like why wouldn't you kind of like focus on, on the strength on the on the military side? I guess what I would think is the strategic choices on the military side were not entirely independent, but somewhat independent from the places where they had personnel that they thought were well suited to the local to the local area. And unfortunately, we can't really test that because again, we don't know where these people came from, the, the judges themselves. Um, but our sense, at least qualitatively, is that the places that they thought they would be successful with running the courts were slightly different from you know the the military. Um, fight that they were having against the US, which was very much driven by the surge, right? Which was very much driven by what the US thought was kind of like the, the key train that they wanted to fight on. Um, anyways, I think to, there's clearly more that we can do here to try and understand why it is that we don't seem to observe this this like close correlation of the, the at least the application of violence and the application of the courts.
4: Great, thanks. Um so go to the Zoom now, uh, I see Peter Krauss has his hand up. So Peter, over to you. And let's see, we can't hear you. Are you muted? It's because the AD system's broken. Oh. Uh-oh. I'll see you. Um, Peter, I'm sorry, can you, t- uh, can you type your question in the chat and I'll read it out in a minute? Sorry about that. I guess we're having technical difficulties at the Massachusetts Institute of (laughs) Technology. So um, back to my list, Um, Ray Wong, Raymond, over to you. (coughs) Hi, uh, thanks for a very interesting talk. Um,
5: uh, Taylor and Zach kind of already asked some of my questions, so I'm going to sort of throw out maybe like a kind of crazy hypothesis out there. Uh, I find it very interesting that the, it's like really the property rights disputes that's doing a lot of the work, and I guess this is a broader question of like what happens to losers, right? Like courts decide winners or losers, so like do the losers like like to come back <laughs> right? Like what, what happens to them, and like especially with property rights, right? If I lose in it, in kind of the kind of the fictional kind of game, right? If I lose, and like I know, like fighters are gonna come to my doorstep if I don't comply, and something bad might happen to me, I'll probably move to like a government-controlled area, right? So, so I guess my question is, what happens to losers, and whether or not, you know, how enforcement happens really kind of creates uh, movements of populations that may be driving, like, you know, the other variables that mentioned, like, you know, support for the Taliban and and like, you know.
1: Uh, like, I know, yeah, I mean, I think an important kind of contextual factor here is that the Taliban are invoking in their decisions Islamic law as justifying their choices. And what we see, you know, in interviews and also from the record is that losers in most cases are not happy to lose, but mostly are like, well, you know, I can't go against Islamic law. I can't say that like Sharia is wrong. And so they are generally accepting of the of the of the decisions right and when we look at the number of intimidation incidents relative to the number of like overall disputes it's really quite small so they're not doing a lot of intimidation relative to all the other things that they're doing so at least what we've seen from the the accounts of these disputes when people lose they're not happy about it but like it because it's wrapped up in a very, I guess, culturally appropriate and kind of high-legitimacy explanation for why they've lost, they're they are like, okay, I mean, this is, you know, if Sharia says that I shouldn't get this inheritance and this other person should, there's not a lot of sort of argument about that, I think, in most cases. So, um, now, the question is, like, in practice, maybe that's what they say in interviews. Maybe inside themselves they have some other, you know, set of, set of ideas. So to your, you know, it's possible that you could say, oh yeah, I'm fine with this, you know, I can't go against that. But in reality, they're like upset with the Taliban. Um, So we don't see huge amounts of migration during this period. Um, I mean, I guess you could sort of come up with the idea that you wouldn't need a huge amount of migration to kind of like move the outcomes. I don't know. I think on the violence outcomes, it'd be pretty hard to explain away through migration. Maybe the public opinion stuff. Um, so, I mean, it would, I guess what I'm saying is I have to think a little bit more carefully about what exactly that mechanism would be, where you would see public opinion changes mostly through migration, but then violence effects that are in line with what we're talking about. Maybe you'd have to say that, Actually, the violence was a bundled treatment and that was driving migration or something. Anyways, I I, I like your question. I'm not I'm not totally convinced that that's what's going on here, but I think it's worth worth engaging with a little bit more in our papers. Thanks. Great.
4: Um Rich Fields? Oh, oh, and Eric.
6: wonderful. Um, so uh, actually Zach and Raymond anticipated uh, mm-hmm. things I was thinking. Um, let me try to put it differently because uh, I don't know how much the, as I told you yesterday, I haven't looked at the paper, so I don't know how much the presentation reflects the paper. When I think about what I want more, if the presentation is faithful to the paper, I will admit it's not, It like, it's not more robustness checks. seems like you've, like, killed that pretty good. Um, it is a more precise answer to this question of what is the treatment and... What is the mechanism through which it worked? So asking from a a policy perspective, what ought the U.S. military have done or, or the U.S. and its NATO allies generally ought to have done to prevent this from happening? If they take out the guys on motorcycles, is that sufficient? Your arguments, well, no, not really, because actually longevity of the Taliban, like expectations about the longevity of the Taliban is also an important part of the treatment. That's a cool theoretical point but all of a sudden it's like inherently bundled. Would changing the training of those guys without taking them out on their motorcycles have made a difference? I would have thought, no, you said yes. I'm less sold on the notion that like Islamic law is broadly seen as this like, oh, we just, Islamic law told me, um, like that doesn't accord with how, I mean, Muslims go fatwa shopping. Like maybe, maybe like, I don't know Afghanistan so well, but like, if you want a particular answer in Islam, there is a broad internet industry available to you to go find the answer that you would like. <laughs> so, uh, like, like that itself convinces me that it's not entirely about like, like there is something about having the legitimacy of a religious ruling, but that does not mean that people don't seek the religious ruling that they would prefer. Sure. Um, uh, And so I'm I'm more skeptical to the answer that you just gave. Then if we think about, okay, if we change the longevity of the Taliban, this is where I have the biggest problem, uh, is you do have examples where the court is withdrawn, which suggests to me that that is a place where the underlying fundamentals of the Taliban were weaker. So like whatever expectations about the longevity of the Taliban would be, which you don't really have a great measure of, um, so we'll call that some like latent theta that you're trying to get at. If you knew that, you would have your full treatment. It would be like there's the authenticity of co- the court, the presence of the court, and the expectations about future, you know, about the court's persistence or something like that. Um, but that made me really question your argument that the uh, about the withdrawn courts. I just worry that there is like a like basically fundamental confounding there where maybe we think about it as bundled treatment, but there's something about, like after treatment is applied, something about the ability to continue supplying treatment that itself is part of what's going on and then is part of your measured outcomes, especially on the violent side. Less, I'm less concerned on the public opinion side. Um, there is sort of a question here, and I'm trying to <laughs> trying to figure out exactly I've what it is.
5: So far, yeah. so.
6: <laughs> <laughs> I made sure to tell him yesterday that you know only one question was allowed, and I'm just completely violating it. So which, which of these, if I were a policymaker, which of these or all of these would I have had to manipulate to keep this effect from happening in your story?
1: Yeah. Okay, I think there are a couple answers that I want to give you here. One is, like, very narrowly on that question of what should policymakers have done. I think, in a very narrow sense, if they took the guys out on motorbikes, the challenge for the Taliban is that they would have either had to, like, reconstitute the judge force much faster than they wanted to, and thereby have much less effective judges and less legitimate judges. I think they would have really... Uh, from a, from a like effectiveness perspective, it would really um, weaken the the ability of these these co- courts well, to I like that job. answer because I argue
6: that religious actors are important, etc. So I'm, yeah, I mean, I,
1: so now the issue though is like it could be. I mean, I, again, I don't really know the number of of judges that have been. It could be that this like the supply of judges in Pakistan could have like backfilled that pretty pretty quickly. I don't. I don't. There you go. Exactly. So I. In terms of changing the training, I don't, I don't know. In a practical sense, I don't know that there was really much they could have done about. That. I mean, there were, the U.S. funded a bunch of alternative justice type things. I mean, it's not that they were totally blind to this, right? They knew it was going on, um, and so they tried funding kind of like alternative justice type things where you would try and make the local shuras be able to compete more effectively with these Taliban courts, right? Um, and I think there are some, there's, you know, the USAID claims that some of that, you know, was effective in some ways. Um, we don't have good data on which places, though, they actually did that. Because it was like, let's pull a bunch of, you know, local shore guys, bring them to the provincial capital, do a training there, and then send them back, right? So we don't really know exactly which districts so much had those. Because that would be really nice to do. would be to kind of like horse race this thing. Yeah. Um, so that, that's one question. I mean, my sense is that, yeah, if you, if you focused on taking out the, the courts, but they clearly had a hard time identifying these people and doing it. Um, but to your point on forum shopping, yeah, I think that's a fair point. Um, so it's like some combination of forum shopping plus a forum enforcement capacity, which kind of gets to this point where, like, if you have more capacity to enforce, uh, then that also strengthens the like ability of the court to do its job. And so you might think about a story in which, sure, the violence doesn't start right away, but like there's some latent capacity to do violence that is unlocked by the ability of the courts to do these judgments and then the latent capacity to enforce it, which then provo- promotes uh uh, informing, which then you know allows these much more effective attacks to take place, or yeah, simply that the
6: Taliban sees where their courts stick and puts more effort into those places. Right. So which, like, okay. okay. So I mean, I, mean thing, yeah. I
1: think our I think that would be our preferred story version of the story is that like the courts are no. the leading edge, which then leads to this consolidation. I think the more the more complicated one is where it's like, well, the courts are also being driven in terms of where they're located. Not just by the trends in violence, but also in trends in like latent capacity, which is really hard to measure, and therefore we can't account account for in our design, right? If it's just levels, it's fine, but if okay. it's trends, it's a problem, right? So, um, anyways, I think I think I think the first the first version is something we could probably spin, but the second is something we need to try and wrestle with a little bit more in terms of like what would be an observable implication that we could test
4: yeah, in some way. Excellent. So, I've got uh, a question for Peter Kraus, an affiliate of the program, graduate of the program now at BC. Thank you so much for a great talk. Can you talk about how your findings and the conduct of Taliban courts compare more broadly across time and space? In terms of time, the Taliban was in control of the country in the late 1990s and is now in control again. We hear a lot about the Taliban, quote, learning. they learn at all from the 1990s for the period you studied, or do you have any sense of lessons they would take from the period of, from your period of study to how they govern and run their courts today? From the space, do you have any sense of how the conduct or effects of Taliban courts compares to that of the groups, say like Hezbollah as studied by Flanagan and Weigand, or FARC as studied by Provost and others? Thank you. Okay, great.
1: Yeah, this is great. Thank you. Um, I have to hold myself back because there's a lot of soliloquy I could be doing on this. Um, all right. So I think we can talk about it in three basic pieces. One is 90s. One is uh, pre... So like 2006 to August of 21, we can see post-August 21. So in the 90s, you know, the Taliban courts were the courts. Those are the only ones. I mean, there were these some local shuras, but the Taliban... Mostly, kind of like, oh, superseded that. So they were just the the only courts in the land. Of course, it was an act of insurgency, and so it was sometimes a little tricky. Um, and they were viewed as very, you know, repressive. Um, I think the way that it's been described to me, and again, I'm not, you know, Rich could probably weigh in this much much better than I can. I, I'm not a, an Islam as a scholar of sort of Islamic law, but my understanding is that the courts in the '90s were very much. Um, driven by more traditional Pashtun uh, mores, Pashtun Wali, um, and less by, um, you know, sort of like formalized training that you get at a madrasa. Whereas after 2001, there was um, uh, this long period, you know, almost 10 years of training in these various madrasas and across, in both Peshawar and Quetta um, that produced a much more coherent, oh, sorry, the first part is also to- a little bit random, like very much driven by local personalities. Then from, say, 2010 to 2021, the courts are much more, uh, like, uh, institutionalized. Like, they had, you know, supervisors. Like, these, these mobile court guys had, like, bosses that they reported to and who they could call if they had questions. You know, they're like, here's the situation. And so they, there was, like, notionally kind of like an appeals level, you know, set of, set of justices that would say... You should do this. You should do that. So it was institutionalized and much more homogenized, like the the set of rules that they were following were what was taught in these institutions. And so um, but it was also competing. Right. And so the accounts that we have and that we've heard is that they were very attuned to kind of like local desires. And there was some uh, there was some goal of aligning the decisions with kind of local expectations. So, you know, it was strategic in this way. Now, more recently, you know, there was this big Vice uh, documentary that was released a few months ago, which, in, in large part, or in about half of it, focused on the Taliban justice. And what we've seen since uh, August of 21 is a shift towards a much more 1990s style of more punitive, more harsh, um, in places where maybe they would take a lighter touch while they were competing. They don't have to compete anymore, they're in charge. And so there's you know, been a shift towards a more um, aggressive approach, I'd say, or a less compromising approach. Um, so anyways, I, I guess the overall story is pretty, uh, pretty aggressive in the 90s, but also not very well organized. In the 2000s, uh, much more organized and also competing and therefore a little bit gentler. Um, now we're well organized and also quite harsh. So I'm kind of combining the, the features of the other two. Um, I don't know a huge amount about Hezbollah or or, or the FARC's actual procedures. I just kind of know that they conducted these sorts of things, so I really can't compare them very much with the Taliban. Um, So unfortunately, I don't have a huge amount to say, other than it seems like strategically they were trying to do some similar things.
4: Great. Um, Thanks, Peter. Thanks also for typing
3: your question and dealing with our our technology here. Um, Eric and Greenberg. So I guess there have been a, a number of questions trying to get at the mechanisms, and I wonder if one way to actually unpack this and get a little bit more traction uh, would be if your data on courts was not just whether or not they existed, but something about the number of cases that they saw, right? And if these courts are, are truly fungible in the sense that you describe, where, where if I'm a petitioner, I could go either to my local shura or the government court of the Taliban to see shifts right, in the use of these courts over time and to see how well these correlate with, with many of the measures that you've already described, right, so public opinion and acts of violence and things like that, right, because then you can actually see uh, potentially whether people's decisions to shift in the types of courts they are using uh, correlates to those other measures.
1: Yeah, thanks. I mean, it, your question also raises a separate thing, which is, even if you are choosing to use a Taliban court, you may still forum shop among the Taliban courts in your neighboring districts, right? Um, which would be interesting as well to understand. So in terms of our data, like what we absolutely have is these like maps of where they're operating. And then we have incomplete data about like the operations and the way that you talk that you were talking about, which we have not used yet because that was largely driven by access, which is correlated with in part. So we have better data on the places where the Taliban was like less, Strong just because the people that are collecting this data were able to access it. So we had set aside the data for now, but I think given the like scale of the challenge of trying to unpack these mechanisms, we may have to just use it to elucidate at least a little bit. Right, even if it's a semi anecdotal yeah. story, right? Yeah. Districts,
3: right? You can see if there's similarities across districts where you can have that Yeah.
1: Yeah.
3: I think that's, that's a great point. Thanks. Um, Eric
5: Thanks. This is uh, fascinating. I, I just wanted to ask a little bit about. You know, I know, I know you don't have the data on the courts for the post 2013, but if you could sort of tell that story, yeah. make some of it up if you have to, and then uh, a follow up to one of your comments in response to, to Peter. In the post 2021 period was is part of the reason that the, the nature of those decisions and the harshness has shifted. Is is that partly a function of just the scaled up demand? You know, the requirements for for courts after the complete takeover? Yeah.
1: So post 2013, um, so our, our understanding is that in most cases, there's just kind of been an expansion um, and that as of about 2018, 2019, you had courts operating in basically every district. Um, so even if it wasn't based in that district, it was a neighboring district and you could call them to come into there. So there was some, I'd say between 2013 and 2018-ish, a general kind of like um, growing and even those places where the courts were withdrawn during that period eventually they did they did um, kind of like fill in the entire geography from afghanistan um we don't know is whether for example they continue to focus on these civil issues or if they also then started doing more criminal issues anecdotally we've heard from you know people that uh, like the afghan analyst network is this group that does kind of more maybe ethnographic type studies, and they say you know that the Taliban certainly in the later period um, was people were commenting about their going into the criminal space much more. That is um, punishing, for example, people accused of theft or robbery, these kinds of things. So my sense is that there was a general expansion, both geographically but also of scope of the courts after 2013. Um, we yeah, again we don't since we don't have those data. I, like I'm not. Totally sure what to what to make of that, but like I, clearly they thought that it was successful, I suppose. Um, and then on the second question about about kind of demand and capacity, um, yeah, I mean in some ways I don't know. People have different opinions about how surprised the Taliban were that they would take over that quickly. There were some that are like, oh, they knew that that it would be sweeping into power. There are others that. State that in fact some of the Taliban leadership expect, expected more resistance, and so um, that the that the kind of like institutional structures were not ready, basically, to sort of take on all the all the demands of because of, now they're they're fielding everything right. They are again the entire court system. Um, so yeah, I mean one explanation could be that with all these new cases, you kind of have to dispose of them quickly, and that may be you may lose some of the nuance, maybe, that you would have gotten in, in the past. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair kind of potential kind of contributor to this.
4: So I've got, um, did you have your hand up? I did. I did. Okay, I'll get you just one second. Um, so um, from YouTube, we've got a question from Philip Martin, um, who, Philip Martin, I think of a graduate of the program. Um, so the question is, thanks for your talk. Could, Taliban courts simply be a proxy for perceptions of Taliban control, which drives reported support for instrumental and social desirability reasons?
1: Yeah, so um, I think at least we know the Taliban courts are not a proxy for the inverse of U.S. control, if that makes sense. So we basically, what we have data on, or what we know reasonably well, are the places that the U.S. had reasonably good control. And then we have this kind of somewhat undifferentiated mass of what are called contested areas. Between those contested areas, there were some that were more or less controlled by Taliban, which we don't have good measures of. But we at least know that the courts are are, are very weakly, almost not correlated with U.S. control. So um, I think that it's not exactly a proxy because we know that they were operating in some places where the U.S. had control. That said, within this kind of like, contested area, it's possible that the courts were more or less correlated with with um, sort of like latent levels of, of Taliban sympathy. I think this kind of gets to, to, to maybe Rich's um, kind of like summary of a few of the comments that were made, which is like, within the contested areas, maybe, you know, there's some latent, uh, maybe if it's not measured in, 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 on the surveys, like some latent level of, of capacity that then is being sort of activated by the courts in some way. So I think I think it's fair. I guess I have kind of two thoughts in my head. One is we can try and investigate it, and rule it in or out. The other is maybe to just say, we are not entirely sure, but it's just a different mechanism, and we're gonna try and articulate both of these possible mechanisms and make the case that both of them are interesting. Uh, and so regardless of which one it is, we still think it's important. Um, maybe that's not as helpful for policymakers, but Maybe for political scientists, it's okay, but um, anyways, thanks for looking.
5: Pete, so it's kind of a related question. Um, So towards the end of the presentation, uh, you made the statement that the courts had an effect on the battlefield. From the data sets, it appears almost the opposite. It appears that the battlefield is affecting the courts. So it's Taliban regaining control to exert influence. It's the Taliban who are gaining legitimacy, uh, exerting various forms of governance, rule of law, sharia, practice, it seems like that, how, how did you come to the conclusion that you saw the courts affecting that? It, it seemed like it was reacting to the battlefield in a, in a positive way. So as the Taliban gains control, they start to exert more influence. Is, is their influence increases? Uh, how, how did you draw that conclusion?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're, this is to the core of this, this question of the kind of ordering. And um, I think there's two different potential stories here. One is that, the courts were effective at galvanizing public support, which then generated um, better information sharing to the Taliban, or should we say, maybe less uh, sharing of information with, for example, the US or or, or the Afghan government, which then made them more effective on the battlefield. So that's, that's one story where it's really the courts driving public opinion, which then drives some amount of the change in the battle, battlefield outcomes. The other story is that the Although maybe the level of violence was not there, in the sense of the the violence was not driving the courts. Maybe there was some like uh, military capacity that the uh, Taliban had that they could not necessarily deploy. But then, by using the courts to win public opinion, they were able to to kind of um, use more effectively. Um, And this version of the story kind of has battlefield outcomes kind of on both parts that the battle that the like military success or ability to have military success both allows them to operate the courts, but then also have the more success in terms of setting IEDs and doing attacks. Um, So my sense is that it's possible that we have either of those two in which, I mean, I do think the evidence is reasonably strong that the courts at least amplified their battlefield capacity, but it could be that it was kind of raising an already relatively strong it was in places where they were already relatively high capacity, which then the courts amplified that ability, rather than kind of like building it up out of nowhere, if that makes sense.
4: Yeah, I was just thinking about that, the I mean, link between the courts and the violence, and they, you restate restating what you just said, and the case of this But but stop, <laughs> but, but if, it, but if, if you can have a court and you can have the Taliban enforcing the judgments, that sort of implies a fairly robust Taliban presence, yeah. which would account for why you would have greater violence in these areas, not necessarily because they were getting the public opinion kind of pretty sure. Sure. Right. So they were just there in a way that they could do more um, in the court's a course of reflection of their presence versus right. Yeah,
1: right. I guess now the way we would oh, go ahead, Rich. Maybe oh, no, no, no. if this is related, I, I guess the way it's crystallizing for me, maybe a, a good way of describing this is like the the sort of presence. I like presence. Presence is good because then we don't have to have control. But like presence begets courts, which are effective, which then provides. Better battlefield outcomes. I guess the argument we're making is that if they had not done the court step and the courts were not effective, that presence would not have translated into better battlefield outcomes.
4: How do you know that? I mean, like, I think. Or how would you know that?
1: Um, I guess the argument is that if they if they had presence, so okay. I guess what you're saying is like if they only if they if the courts were in every place that they had good presence, then it, it would be indistinguishable. I guess what I'm saying is like, they had presence in a lot of other places too, and it didn't translate into okay. better biofuel outcomes. Um, okay. But this this comes down to this, like if we don't have a good measure of presence, it's hard to yeah.
5: justify that argument. Well, like you're, you're doing incredible research in like a yeah. data hostile host environment. Mm-hmm.
4: So I've um, so got two two fingers, I'll just go down the line, Rich, and then um, Eric.
6: Yeah. Uh, I do hate that we're like, ah, wonderful data collection. But please, like, did you infiltrate the court? (laughs) Like, were you one of the judges? Tell us how it really felt. Um, This (laughs) Uh, this is why I work on the internet when I'm working with uh, Islamic law (laughs) stuff. They just put it all out there. Um, So I think Taylor's question clarified for me something. So a lot of my concern is you're using the counterfactual in the model. You must be of places that didn 't have a court that had the same level of violence in the prior trend, yes. and my contention is like i 'm just concerned that there's something that there's something omitted there, basically, and like no amount of matching on observables gets you that, and I, like I think that 's fine i mean the, the evidence is like compelling for what it is, um, but it just like leaves out this question of like well, if they had equal capacity why didn't they put a court there? And so maybe some explanation of like, why, like, if that's the counterfactual that's happening in the model, and I think it must be, yeah, then, it then what is the plausible explanation? Or, or there isn't a plausible explanation for why courts are uh, going in some places and not others. Or, and, and so that's just a limit of what we can do with the causal inference here. Yeah. On the flip side, I think the way you were telling the story in the slide made me try to connect the increases in public opinion. I read it linearly that your argument was like the public opinion improves and then this improves violence capacity. Mm-hmm. And I think strengthening that mechanism even anecdotally would help me. So like I was like, well, is it really that these people in you know some land dispute are more likely to pick up weapons, but once you're talking about like Intel and where the Information is going, it's going to Americans, it's not going to Americans. That made it a lot more sense to me, and so I think just highlighting that would have, would have helped. Me. Yeah, I mean, in practice on
1: that, like most IEDs are discovered by, or at least in the data that we saw, most of them were like there were a lot of discoveries coming from people. And yeah, yeah. Jake
6: has a paper with Vitamin about yeah. informing an it And so
1: like the question is the mechanism is very much, people just not doing that anymore. Um, but okay let's, let's just think of conceptually make sure that we have. so it is the case that they are matched and, and, and no different on observable violence in the pre-period right but what we don't have a measure of is presence so the idea is okay it could be the case that there's like some latent capacity or some latent presence that although they're the same on violence they are stronger or they have the potential to be stronger because of local ties I don't know so whatever it is um, or just the aggregate violence measure
6: actually doesn't like there may be different signatures of violence sure that are getting added up there.
1: yeah so there's something there's some like difference in the like quality of the presence of the Taliban in these two places which both allows them to establish these courts and to be more effective in their in their violence um, I mean I think we can we can definitely dig into that a little bit more I mean it, it would have to I mean in some ways you you have to think that. You'd have to think that the 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 fact that the courts are resolving disputes and um, th- this difference in capacity would have to be driving the public opinion result independently, right, of the courts having a mo- um, uh, an effect or that the movement of public opinion has no effect on battlefield outcomes. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that so was that's, the
6: second thing is what I was thinking.
1: Yeah. But then I'm more
6: convinced once yeah. I think about like informing about IEDs, et cetera.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, we'll we'll have to work on it a little bit to make sure that the logic makes sense. But I think I think there is something here about, like, trying to understand this latent capacity question and either rule it out or find some way to, like, make it more core to the story in a way that doesn't, like, just make us, make the court sort of disappear as the, as the, what we think of as, as an important actor. Sorry yeah. nitpick, just trying no, to make No, it no, through. no, I think like, nitpicking is good.
3: So, so the project in itself right now is, is super, super interesting. It's, it's really cool data, so I'm not going to ask you to go find a, uh, a Taliban judge. But I, I wonder if just bringing in a tiny bit of qualitative data would actually make the story more more compelling. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know much about the Taliban, but I know that they were often very clear in kind of issuing directives to, to their folks. So I'm wondering if there is any kind of, of you know, Narrative that, that you can find that, that explains you know, from Taliban leadership why these courts should be put in place, right? And what is their story in their minds for creating these courts? Um, maybe use that as an opening vignette for, for the treatment. Yeah,
1: I mean, we, we so we have a lot of qualitative stuff in the paper, but not so much on the selection question. In part because it's not particularly clear. We have a little so there are these two competing shuras at the time within the Taliban. There's the Quetta Shura and the Peshawar Shura. Um, we do so we have a little bit of information about like how the two of them chose to kind of like split up who between the two of them like kind of where the dividing line was and that's where a lot of these withdrawn courts were because they couldn't necessarily agree um but yeah I mean it's it's definitely worth trying to dig more on because clearly this is an important issue
4: great well that brings us to the end of the seminar so thanks Thank so you. much for uh, coming to speak to us today yeah please join me everyone and Thank you, Bernard, for a terrific talk.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Wednesdays with SSP. This is Chris Burns signing off.